0: Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we're speaking with Jim Fellman, partner with Kynes Markman Fellman, and former chair of the criminal justice section of the ABA, and current chair of the Sentencing Standards Task Force of the criminal justice section. So, Jim, thank you for being here, and thank you for joining us
1: today. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Great. Well, before we jump into our discussion on sentencing, we'd also like you To share a little bit about the work you did on the clemency project a couple of years ago would you mind telling us about that project
1: absolutely one of the most exciting things I ever had the opportunity to do in my life Uh, President Obama made it known that he was interested in granting clemency to certain people who were eligible, who met their criteria, essentially nonviolent, had served a long time, and that their sentences were unjust in the sense that they would be different if they were imposed under current law. So the ABA partnered with other organizations to raise an army of volunteer lawyers to... Represent prisoners who were eligible and who met those criteria in the drafting and the submission of clemency um, applications to the President, um, hundreds of which were granted. And I'm very proud of our section's support of that project and uh, uh, the work of all the lawyers who participated in it, and remain uh, very grateful to President Obama and those in, admi- in, in his administration who. Uh, saw the justice of alleviating some of the lengthy and uncalled for sentences for some of these people, uh, many of whom are out now and are able to enjoy the blessings of liberty.
0: That's great. So speaking of sentencing and um, moving forward from sentencing, whether they be unjust or um, what people would measure, the debt to society, if you will. Um, We're here in New Orleans at the White Collar Crime Institute and you are participating or you're leading a panel discussion addressing sentencing and collateral consequences. We're looking forward to that panel. Um, Why don't we start our discussion today with walking through sort of uh, the history of sentencing and sentencing reform, if you will, um, beginning with the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984 to help set the stage for um, how sentencing has changed over the years and where we're at now. That's what we'll get to.
1: So it's a great place to start, Emily, because uh, at least in the federal system, which is what we're speaking about now, uh, the, the world really changed in 1984. Before 1984, when Congress enacted a a crime, they left it largely to the judge to decide what the right sentence was, uh, anywhere from zero to 20 years many times. And the concern was that some judges would sentence um, in a manner that would be considered too lenient. Other judges might sentence in a manner that might be considered too harsh. And there wasn't a lot of consistency or predictability And another aspect of it that was somewhat uh, criticized by some is that the actual period of time the person sentenced spent in prison uh, was determined later by a parole commission. And so you might see someone get sentenced to 10 years, but they'd only do three. And there was a concern that it fostered disrespect uh, for the law. So I think the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984 is a great place to begin this conversation.
0: Right. And following the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, the U.S. Sentencing Commission was formed, correct?
1: That's right. The decision was made that rather than leave judges sentencing decisions unguided by any further advice, that it would be best to create an expert body, a United States Sentencing Commission, to promulgate sentencing guidelines to help guide judges in the use of their discretion. And so they were created in 1984. They were charged with the uh, responsibility to create guidelines, which they did in 1987. And at the same time, parole was abolished. And so people were uh, to serve 85% at least of whatever sentence they received. So those were the big changes that came on in 1984 and then when the guidelines came online in 1987.
0: Great. And how were those guidelines received when they came out? I They were obviously the end-all answer, right? And no further need of any reform or revisions needed after that, right? <laughs>
1: Well, I think most people hopefully would agree that they made many improvements. But uh, they certainly uh, have needed uh, improvement, as you would expect, with any kind of complex endeavor like this. So over the years, there have been many changes made to the guidelines – um, but perhaps the most significant uh, change came in 2005 when the United States Supreme Court decided the Booker decision, that without getting too much into the weeds about it, essentially rendered these guidelines advisory, and it meant that that we would still use the guidelines, but rather than a judge having to follow them, they simply consider them, and if they think they lead to the right result, they use them, and if they think a adjustment up or down is appropriate, they're much more free to do so. Um, but those were those were the sort of um, developments there. One of the other things, though, is that they have received some criticism and particularly in the white-collar area for economic offenses, and that's what we're here to talk about. They were somewhat criticized there as being too harsh.
0: And at what point did the criminal justice section decide that they would put forward some recommendations or take up um, their concern and take action on their concern, I guess, um, to respond to these guidelines and and the impact they were having.
1: And this, again, is a very uh, important part of what our section does, and I'm very proud of its work here. Um, It became clear that to the sentencing commission in in and around 2013-14, the judges were not very happy with the guideline for economic crimes, particularly in cases with high loss amounts. The the judges were critical of them. They felt like there was too much emphasis on the amount of loss and not enough emphasis on other factors that may be important in assessing a defendant's culpability. So they made known that they were considering a revision of, of of the guideline and where the ABA came in is rather than simply wait for the commission to promulgate a proposed amendment to the guidelines and then and then respond to that uh, we got out in front of that process and we created a task force to write the guideline that we thought should be written. And um, I'm very proud of the work that we did. We got together some of the best and brightest minds, people who had really given careful thought to these issues, some of the judges who had themselves been very critical of the guideline. And in November of 2014, we put out what we consider to be – A a very helpful document. It is a report on our task force on the reform of federal sentencing for economic crimes. It's on the ABA criminal justice section's website. And essentially, we wrote a sentencing guideline for economic crimes that we think helps judges guide their discretion in ways that are equally or perhaps in some instances more helpful than the U.S. sentencing guideline. Mm -hmm.
0: And what has been the reception to the these guidelines that the criminal justice section put together.
1: Well, a number of judges have used them. They, they have relied on them in uh, in imposing sentence. They have they have mentioned them in their in their uh, decision making. Um, we need to get the word out about them more. Uh, we need lawyers to be more aware of them. We need lawyers to present them to judges more frequently. And this is one of the things that we're going to talk about on our panel. And one of the reasons I'm happy to be doing this podcast. If you're a white-collar criminal defense lawyer out there and you've got a federal sentencing coming up involving an economic crime, please take a look at our task force's work. Consider citing it to the court. And, and there's a lot of work in there and, and – um, What we tried to do is be a little more rational in terms of the things that really separate out the worst from the not so bad to the not really so bad at all in ways that that, that are easy to understand and easy to articulate and that may help judges reach a more just result. Mm
0: -hmm. And as you and I were chatting before we began this interview um we were talking about some of the things that you'll be discussing on this panel and um we talked about the other you know, as we were talking about the current state of sentencing and some of the the changes that are being made we we got to a point where you were talking about the incorporation of using video in as as a form of testimony in a in a trial
1: Well, at sentencing proceedings, traditionally, uh, the defendant makes an allocution, very important part of the process. The the lawyer will make a statement to the court to try to mitigate the offense. Sometimes character witnesses are called. But increasingly, people are using um, videos uh, for sentencing presentations to courts because the sense is that, that... A picture can be worth a thousand words, and and that that media can be helpful. And so, one of the topics we're going to be exploring is the use of videos uh, in sentencing proceedings. And these can sometimes take the form of, for example, a day in the life of the defendant, where uh, the judge sees what the defendant's house looks like, what their kids' act like what other people think and say about them in a in a setting that's not quite so formal or stressful as as a courtroom and um, uh, many judges I've spoken to have said that, that this is really very helpful to them in seeing a much bigger and more complete picture of the defendant. Now, On the other hand, I've also heard a few judges say that they are, are concerned about the use of this because it's only available to those who can afford it. They don't feel good about uh, how uh, they weigh this defendant's sentencing against someone who's not able to produce a video. They certainly wouldn't want one that was particularly Slick looking, but uh, but we're going to be talking about the use of videos, uh, and uh, they do seem to be uh, more common. And I think it's a part of a phenomenon of realizing how important sentencing is in the proceedings. That we don't just walk into court and and uh, give it give it a whirl. Uh, that we really give more and more thought and consideration to how to best educate a court on the mitigating aspects of our clients' lives.
0: Mm-hmm. So in in taking a step back into where we're at with sentencing, um, it, there's room for that because of the guidelines, right? Because they're not, and, and correct me, and it's obviously you're the expert and I'm not, but um, with sentencing, the, The goal of the guidelines is to help prevent saying, you use the example of stealing, saying you stole. So there is one punishment for stealing, or one sentence if you, yeah, to be more specific, one sentence for all people who have stolen, right? So the the guidelines help provide an allowance for saying, for making distinctions about stealing and intent, right? Right.
1: So. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, in order for the, the public to have confidence in our system of justice, it, it has to be rational. And rationality in the sense of sentencing often means proportionality. Not all theft offenses are created equal. What was the amount stolen? What was the harm? What did it mean to the people it was stolen from? Were there a lot of victims? Were there only a few? And importantly, what was the defendant's motive? Were they setting out to be predators? Or were they simply risk shifting and making sure that if someone lost money, it wasn't them, which is not so great, but not so bad as being predatory? Or were they not trying to cause anybody a loss at all? But they were breaking some rule and a loss resulted. These are all different states of of mental Intent, some more culpable than others, and uh, so we do think that it's important. And the guidelines, now that they are advisory, they didn't always they didn't always calculate all of these subtleties. Now that they are advisory, judges are much more free to consider these kinds of things. We hope that our uh, task force recommendations help. We hope that things like videos may help. And so part of the hope here is that those who come to our our conferences and listen to our training sessions will be that much better armed and equipped uh, to present the kinds of of information that courts can now really make more meaningful use of now that the guidelines are advisory.
0: And remind me, is there still debate um, on whether it should be advisory or whether it should be more finite, like the guidelines are just – the, the rule of enforcement?
1: Y- yes. I mean, uh, the, prior to the Booker decision, the guidelines were binding and the judge had to follow them unless there was an extraordinary reason uh, not to. Um, I think that most people feel that an advisory system is better, that it frees judges to be judges and to consider a much richer mix of information than you could always write down in advance. Um, but when any loosening like that, you are going to have some disparities you know, work their way back into the system. Anytime you afford judges' discretion, some judges are going to use it in ways that some people aren't as happy with. So there is a debate about whether advisory guidelines are best or whether or not uh, they should be tightened up. And that's a subject of, of future study and the gathering of, of data.
0: And we're headed into a new debate on sentencing that's going to be another topic of your panel is looking forward at the First Step Act and what the implications of that will be.
1: Yeah, there's been, I think, bipartisan consensus in our country for quite some time now in the federal system that we are just locking up too many people for too long. And uh, finally, after many years of effort, at least a first step was taken with the First Step Act. And it's a fairly modest step, but it could be quite significant. And there are two aspects of it in particular that we're going to be uh, addressing uh, in, our, in our panel discussion tomorrow. Um, the first step Act did a variety of different things, and a lot of it is really aimed at uh, rectifying some of the injustices in the context of drug offenses. But since we're here at a conference on white-collar crime, we're going to be focusing on two other aspects of the First Step Act. Um, The first aspect has to do with the earlier release of prisoners who don't pose as much of a risk. So the uh, Bureau of Prisons and the Department of Justice are going to be working together in the coming months to create a risk assessment tool that is going to be used to divide prisoners into categories of risk of reoffense, high, medium, low, and also to help develop programming that would direct prisoners so that they could lower their risk assessment. So a high-risk prisoner could, through programming, become medium and medium become low. And then we want to reward and incentivize people to do those programs and recognize their lower risk of reoffense by increasing the amount of gain time, or in other words, letting low-risk people out sooner. So one of the big things that we'll be watching in the First Step Act is the development of this risk assessment tool, its implementation, and its impact on lowering the amount of time that at least some lower risk, nonviolent offenders will actually spend behind bars. So that's the first aspect of what we're going to be talking about on the first step back.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. And then you're also, well, maybe this doesn't fit for white collar as much, but compassionate release is the other, um, is the other potential place for sentencing Changes,
1: right? Well, the second as- – yes. The second aspect of the first step back that we're going to be discussing are the changes to the law of what's called compassionate release. And believe it or not, there are some people who can have some compassion for white-collar offenders. <laughs> Uh, I actually think that it'll have significant impact on our practice. So to be clear about what we're talking about, uh, we have for many years had a provision in the law called compassionate release that is mostly about people who are terminally ill, but it can also apply to other extraordinary family circumstances or just other unusual circumstances where it just is compassionate to release someone early – Um, The big difference that the First Step Act makes is that, whereas before, a request for a reduction of sentence based on compassionate release could only be made by the Bureau of Prisons. Now, under the First Step Step Act, you ask the Bureau of Prisons to make that request. But if the Bureau of Prisons doesn't, doesn't agree or won't make the request, prisoners themselves are now authorized to directly petition a court to lower their sentence and to release them early based on the criteria in the compassionate release law. So I think white-collar criminal practitioners need to know about this. They need to be ready to act. They need to uh, begin submitting uh, petitions for early release under this new compassionate release provision. And it's going to be very interesting to see how this develops. And hopefully we can let some people... Uh, out of prison who just simply don't need to be there uh, because they're about to die, Uh, and there just isn't any reason not to allow them to die in their own home. Uh, Also, there are other unusual circumstances where it's simply compassionate to let someone out a little early to help care for a dying parent or or a minor child if a caregiver is otherwise unavailable. So this is another and final aspect of the First Step Act that we are going to focus on, and we're very excited about the Congress his action in enacting this law, and we're uh, hoping that it will have some very just outcomes for some people that are truly deserving of need and in, in, in need for mercy here. Mm-hmm.
0: So if someone has a, a loved one or someone they're close to, or is the person that feels like they're facing a sentence that is too long, doesn't quite fit the crime or felt like they were made an example of the most extreme punishment, what would be their the steps to take to start moving forward towards getting their sentence reduced?
1: Well, and these these things that we're talking about now under the First Step Act are, are what are called back-end reforms. They are uh, ways that a sentence already imposed uh, can be shortened. Um, and obviously if they think they meet the criteria um, for compassionate release they should they should consider hiring an attorney and if they can't afford one they should just file. Uh, with the court. Uh, and these risk assessment tools in terms of the increased gain time I was talking about, they, we just have to wait for them to be developed and then hope that they that they work. But I think that you've pointed out that there is much remaining work to be done in sentencing reform on the front end. Uh, many of the laws that have resulted in sentences that that are widely and on a bipartisan basis viewed to be too harsh and too long, they're still on the books. And so there is still a compelling need to address front end, that is at the time of sentencing reform, uh, to try to make punishments fit the crime a little better uh, in, in some of these areas. So there is still uh, much reform work yet to be done, and uh, I look forward to hoping to be part of the ABA and the criminal justice section's uh, policy efforts to make those, those reforms a reality.
0: So, in circling back, we mentioned that you're currently serving as the chair of the Sentencing Standards Task Force. And these standards that the ABA puts forward, um, the last time that they did sentencing standards was in 1994, is that what you said? And so, w- what, is, what is your current role um, as a task force in, in working on the sentencing standards?
1: So the ABA puts out standards in all areas of the law, and uh, including the law of sentencing. And we haven't revised our sentencing standards, as you've mentioned, since 1994. And a lot has happened since then, including the Booker decision. So it's very early in the work of our group. But we've put together a very diverse and talented group of people uh, to take a look at our sentencing standards. Uh, we've had one meeting. We'll have another meeting in April. And uh, it's an exciting group, a very, very lively group. And uh, I'm not sure where we're going to come out, actually. We're taking a hard look. Uh, The old sentencing standards spoke in terms of guidelines that were presumptive. Um, I suspect that we will be taking a look quite carefully at whether or not advisory is, is better than presumptive and in what other uh, additions to the standards of sentencing that we feel over the last 25 years of experience uh, can guide us toward. Uh, so we're very early on in our work, but... Uh, but it's an honor to 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 chair the task force. We've got a great group of people, and as as anyone in, familiar with the ABA processes knows, standards do take a while. Uh, they go through the standards. A task force, which is where we're at now, then they go to the Standards Committee, and then if they're approved there, they go to our council, and then ultimately to the House of Delegates. So they're a few years away from being a reality, um, but uh, we've got a great group, and we're hard at work, and and uh, we hope to be able to start sharing some work product, at least with the Standards Committee, fairly soon.
0: Um, once the work passes the House of Delegates, that then becomes the tool for the ABA to lobby on behalf of these reforms or these, or anything that's put forward as guidelines or standards, correct?
1: That's the whole point of our work, and we hope that uh, that they won't just sit on a shelf and gather dust. That they'll be looked at by state legislatures uh, and policymakers, and they also give our our very energetic and talented government affairs office the opportunity to go and lobby uh, because they become official ABA policy. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's part of why we do all this. And um, we will, of course, welcome all input and uh, any of you out there listening. If you have any thoughts in particular about ways in which our standards or sentencing law in general could be improved, I hope you'll let the ABA criminal justice section know we're here working for you. Come join us.
0: Yeah. And one last question that I have around um, sentencing is, what is your best advice for effective sentencing advocacy?
1: Well, uh, I think that you've got to maintain credibility. Uh, And uh, so you've got to every case is different. But you need to try to humanize uh, the defendant, make the court understand why the defendant committed the offense. Judges want to know, why did you do this? And number two, how do I know you won't do it again? And so I think if you can answer those two questions in a way that's helpful, that there's a reason or at least an explanation, if if, if not a justification for why this happened, they want to know why it happened. And then why would they believe that you're not that this isn't going to happen again? Those are the two questions I think any reasonable court wants to know the answer to.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to your panel discussion this week.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for all you're doing to help our section.
0: And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.